0: I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. President Trump and Joe Biden have regularly sparred about the threats from white supremacist groups like the Proud Boys on the right and Antifa on the left. In this episode of Q&A, we learn more about each from two guests. First is Kathleen Ballou, University of Chicago historian, who writes about white supremacy organizations. And then Jillian K. Melcher, a Wall Street Journal editorial writer.
1: Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not...
0: Kathleen Ballou, you have literally written a book on white supremacy called Bring the War Home. When you heard that moment at the debate, what was your reaction?
2: So it's very concerning for a number of reasons. And the first reason that it's concerning is that, you know, I have long since, um, as many analysts have, given up trying to understand the president's motivations in any single thing that he says. But even if you take the most generous interpretation of Trump's comment, right, even if you say, Perhaps he was fed the Proud Boys as an example. Perhaps he meant to say, stand down. The thing is that there is a large and complex white power movement in our country that heard the president's words as a call to military preparedness. Um, This is a movement that is interested in violence against civilians, violence against our democracy and its institutions. And even if the president didn't mean to call them to arms, that
0: is effectively what he has done. Um, I'm not at all sure he can unring that bell. Joe Biden supplied the name Proud Boys to him for people who had never heard of them before. Give us a quick snapshot. Sure. So the Proud Boys
2: are a group in a larger landscape of white power um, and militia movement activism. So that is broadly fringe right activism that is interested in resisting federal government power, um, advocating for Second Amendment rights and gun possession, um, gun ownership rights. Um, And also sometimes involves people who are outright white supremacists, meaning people who not only believe in the superiority of white people over other people, but who are prepared and eager to take violent action to ensure the continuation of white supremacist powers and systems.
0: The Proud Boys, as you've written about, explicitly disavow white supremacy. And in fact, there are some people of color who belong to the group. So how should we process those pieces of information?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's helpful to think about kind of overlapping Venn diagrams. Um, So there are two ways that the Proud Boys are related to a broader landscape of white power activism. The first is that they are effectively um, organized around several issues that although they include activists of color and say they're not white supremacist, they are interested in a whole bunch of ideas that are congruent with violent white power activism. These include what the Proud Boys themselves call Western chauvinism, which is the idea that Western meaning European and white cultures are superior to other cultures. Um, They are anti-Islam, they are anti-feminist, they are violent in many iterations. Um, And they have worked as um, strike forces for um, at moments uh, of white power activism. So for instance, they were present in the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally in Virginia in 2017. Um, They've showed up as de facto security personnel elsewhere Um, And so they are at least um, shoulder to shoulder with white power
0: activists. In general, what do adherents of these kinds of groups, what kind of country do they envision? And how do they realistically see getting there? So... That question asks us to go back and
2: look at the history of this movement. And here I'd like to emphasize that we are decades, if not generations, into this activism. The white power movement brought together Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, radical tax protesters, um, and some parts of the militia movement in the 1980s and 90s, and has been at war on the federal government and the United States since the early 1980s. Um, they have at various times advocated things like a white ethnostate, the forced genocide of people of color, excuse me, the forced removal and then subsequent genocide of people of color um, and the use of chemical and biological weapons to eradicate the entire world of non-white people. So one important thing to remember is that the nation and white nationalism is not necessarily the United States. For these activists, the nation and white nationalism is often imagined as the Aryan nation and the goal imagined not as anything to do with the US but as a transnational group of white people. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has just issued a threat assessment report that shows that not only are these groups, meaning white power extremists and um, militia movement groups, um, the largest threat in the United States. Um, they now outstrip not only what the president called Antifa and the left, um, but they also far outstrip the threat of radical Islamist terror in the United States. So Trump's own FBI and DHS have said that this is the main problem um, in relation to terrorist violence that our nation needs to address.
0: How are statistics on the size of groups such as this reliably gathered since obviously no one's answering surveys about membership and the like? How how do we really know? So here's one thing to keep in mind. Since
2: the early 1980s, this movement has been using a strategy called leaderless resistance. Now, this is going to sound familiar to listeners, I think, because it's effectively the same thing we're familiar with um, as cell-style terrorism in the post 9-11 moment. Um, The idea is that one or a few white power activists would work um, towards a common set of goals, but without communication with other cells and without communication with central leadership. That strategy did a number of important things. Um, It made it very difficult for us to describe and document the white power movement um, violence as it happened because we instead see a lot of stories about quote unquote lone wolves when in fact we're seeing um, movement uh, motivated violence. But it also means that there's not a great correlation between um, relative group size and violent activity. So in other words, if you're trying to recruit 2,000 people to march down Main Street, um, that's a different recruitment effort than if you're trying to get six people to detonate a bomb. So what we see is actually that there's not a neat relationship between relative size of these groups and the um, frequency of violence that they carry out. Instead, what experts are interested in looking at is sort of the um, momentum of activism and activity Um, We can see it through smaller acts of violence that tend to lead up to bigger mass casualty attacks.
0: Let's go back to the president's admonition to stand by, uh, even if, as you say, he perhaps misspoke in that instance. And and at the town hall meeting, he explicitly disavowed uh, white supremacy when pressed uh, by the debate moderator. But you say that groups heard what they wanted to hear there. What happened as a result of hearing those words, stand by? So right away, we saw on social media, some of these groups incorporated that slogan,
2: stand back, stand by, as part of a badge. I mean, these groups don't need a very loud signal to come to arms. We're talking about a paramilitary movement um, that is already sort of, you know, standing at readiness to take action. Um, So the thing that I think experts are concerned about is both the... um, The sort of subtext of the president's comments that that indicates that he is somehow condoning um, any violence that might occur in a future moment when they are called not just to stand by but to act Um, and also the sort of hint of non-prosecution. I mean this is a movement that has not needed overt signaling to amp up its activity in the past. Um, This movement has used green lights as simple as like a failed prosecution effort to launch major recruitment campaigns and additional pushes for violence. Um, and you know, just to have on people's radar, we're talking about the movement responsible for the bombing of Oklahoma City in 1995. That action is the largest deliberate mass casualty event on mainland American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9-11, but we don't usually think of it as the work of a movement, even though the historical archive shows without any doubt that it was that. Um, So I think part of what we have to think about is why we as a society have not faced this as a terrorist threat to our polity and what we might need to change in the way we think about these stories to change that conversation.
0: Well, with the election looming, uh, you've actually been very busy over the past couple of weeks after the debate and um, then the subsequent threat against the governor of Michigan and governor of Virginia. But I'm wondering about uh, what, in fact, uh, you and others who follow these movements are concerned about regarding Election Day. In other words, stand by for what? What are the scenarios if President Trump wins and if President Trump loses?
2: Yes. So I think that, I mean, my set of concerns based on the history of this movement and the, the ideology of the people who are drawn to this kind of activism Um, I think that if there is a Biden victory, there is a real threat that these activists will not see it as a fair election and will continue to seek out opportunities to carry out acts of violence. And just as a reminder, um, they're interested not just in sort of um, voter intimidation, although they have done that for, I mean, arguably for a century or more as part of the KKK. Um, These are also activists who are interested in infrastructure attacks Um, mass poisoning, mass casualty attacks. Um, Some of them have talked about attacking nuclear power plants in order to set off nuclear disasters. These are people who are interested in major scale violence, not only sort of poll intimidation. Um, And then the other historical parallel that I think is concerning is if Trump were to be reelected and were to call these groups into some kind of validity, then we're talking about a extra legal sort of strike squad um, that has historical parallels with totalitarian regimes in Latin America and elsewhere. Um, in either case, I don't think that there is a scenario where this group of people will simply put their guns down and go home. Um, I think these people are very, very angry and frustrated and you know are tapping into very widely held frustrations about society as a whole related to the pandemic and the quarantine, economic turmoil, major racial justice protests, um, and the changes to our democracy that I think are impacting a lot of people. But
0: these activists take that set of frustrations and seek violent outcomes. In uh, recent weeks, there has also been uh, a a great deal of debate in the public sphere about Second Amendment constitutional guarantee for militias. What is your response Um, when that argument is brought up? Well, so historians don't
2: see a clear through line from the militias of early America to the groups that are private militias claiming legitimacy in in the current moment. And the reason is that um, if you look at the history of militias, which are laid out in the Second Amendment um, as well-regulated militias and have a very specific role in the early history of our nation, those groups are all incorporated into National Guard and um, other state-run units in the early 20th century with the Dix Act. Um, Those groups are all incorporated. So the entirety of legal and legitimate militia activity is run through National Guard and other official channels. All of the private activity, um, as people who study this have found, is illegal to some capacity in every state. There's no state that allows a private militia to do order making or policing of its citizens. Um, some states also have additional laws prohibiting things like parading of, uh, with firearms in public or amassing and training a private army. Um, and the reason for those laws often have to do with prior Klan activity in those places. Um, and then that's all before these militia groups have even carried out an action like attempting to kidnap a sitting governor, which is, of course, illegal in several ways on top of all of that. Um, so I think. The important thing here is that we would not want to be sidetracked by the use of the word militia, which specialists and law enforcement use simply to describe one stripe of this broader movement. Um, I think it would be a catastrophic mistake to be taken up with the question of the word when what we really need to be doing is looking carefully at the movement as a whole and thinking about how to confront it. I mean, we're talking about a movement that is posing a direct threat to
0: our free elections, to our democracy, and to our, I mean, to many of the promises of the American nation. While we're talking about history, and you you did touch upon some of these points, but what is it about 40 years ago uh, that really gave rise to these movements in our society? What was changing back then that began to, uh, to have people coalesce around these ideas? Great question. So the thing that brought this movement
2: together, and again, these are activists who, in every way but race, are quite diverse. Um, This is a group with Klansmen, neo-Nazis, skinheads, radical tax resistors, um, people in uh, white supremacist religions. Um, They're in all areas of the nation, certainly not just the South. This includes men, women and children, felons and religious leaders, um, people with uh, advanced degrees and high school dropouts. Um, civilians and veterans and active duty troops. And the thing that really allowed that big swell of people to come together was a common story about the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Um, This feeling of being betrayed by the state and a sense of imminent apocalyptic threat to the white race. So they understood this sense of state betrayal as interlinked with a bunch of issues that I think people probably usually think of as just capital C conservative. But um, this movement opposed immigration, abortion, feminism, LGBTQ rights and more, not because of their sort of um, capital C conservative belief system, but because these activists saw all of those things as a threat to the white birth rate um, and experienced this soft moment of demographic change that people have been talking about when America would no longer be majority white. They see that as tantamount to racial apocalypse. So these activists are really working with a feeling that the government has betrayed them and this tangible state of emergency that really pushed them towards violent action through the 1980s and 90s and has really been a platform for social um, networking and and organizing um, over several decades at this point.
0: Demographers estimate that 2042 is the date, uh, just 22 years hence when uh, white Americans will become a minority in in this country. So what I'm hearing you say is that this election is really not the focus. Donald Trump is really not the focus. But that date, which will continue to loom large in front of adherents past this election, is really the the challenge for them.
2: I mean, I think that's really a lot of what they experience as a threat, right? So... um, this movement is also very opportunistic and will capitalize on all of the other tensions in our society as it's able to. But that state of emergency, it's, it's hard to overstate the importance of that feeling of emergency and that pressing moment of what they really feel as a racial apocalypse. And then, I mean, the other thing just to keep in mind is when we think about, um, you know, the comparison between white power activism and militia movement activism on the one hand, Um, and what some people have tried to establish as a leftist comparative example. Um, I think it's just very important to keep in mind the comparative casualty counts and the depth and breadth of organization. Because what we see on the white power movement is generations of complex social network activity. Um, You know, many, many groups, all regions of the country bound together by deep, deep social relationships. I mean, we're talking about activists who provide childcare to each other, pick each other up from the airport, they go to church and white power churches they get marital counseling from each other it's this very deeply imbricated web of people and this prepares them to launch
0: violent activity in a way that's just i think completely unmatched by the by the left you you talked about the uh, the 1995 oklahoma city bombing as uh, the most prominent example of what the white power movement Uh, Many people thought it was lone wolf Timothy McVeigh, uh, and I'm wondering um, when something like this catastrophic actually happens, in other words, Timothy McVeigh was successful in his operation, what does that do to other adherents? I mean, Timothy McVeigh, we know, was immediately inspirational to a
2: whole bunch of other people. Militia group activity did not drop off right after the Oklahoma City bombing, which is what would happen if people were really horrified by that event, right? Militia group activity spiked after the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, We also know that activists in the present moment are doing things like hanging pictures of Timothy McVeigh in their room. Um, We know that they are talking about him as a saint and as a martyr of the movement. Um, he's somebody who's held up as an example of how to do leaderless resistance terrorism. Um, and people are seeking that out in a very deliberate way in the present moment.
0: I want to play a clip from very recent testimony to Congress by uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray talking about the size and scope and threat of the white supremacist movement. Let's listen to him.
1: Within the domestic terrorism bucket category as a whole, racially motivated violent extremism is, I think, the biggest bucket within that larger group and within the racially motivated violent extremist bucket, uh, people uh, ascribing to some kind of white supremacist type um, ideology is is certainly the the biggest chunk of that. And I would also add to that, that um, racially motivated violent extremists over recent years have been responsible for the most lethal activity in the US. Um, Now this year, uh, the lethal attacks, domestic terrorism lethal attacks we have, have, I think, all fit in the category of anti-government, anti-authority, uh, which covers everything from anarchists, violent extremists to militia types.
0: And since that testimony, we then learned about the plot against Governor Whitmer. Uh, so how should people understand uh, that the scope and size of that plot against two sitting governors? So I think...
2: The most important thing that people can do when you encounter news about the white power movement and militia groups is to do the very hard work. And I I really understand that this is an almost impossible thing to ask in this moment where we face this barrage of news stories and information all the time. But we have to do the work of putting the stories together, because if you read the Governor Whitmer story on its own, it's just a few people with one plot. It can seem quite far fetched. Um, you know, they were apprehended, an FBI agent was able to circumvent their plans. Um, that ended up pretty, um, I mean, I think that's the best outcome we could hope for, even though um, it was a quite serious plot. And I would call people's attention to um, the, the extensive discussion of explosives and the phrase removing her for trial, which elsewhere in this movement discourse would mean um, a trial by hanging as, as a treasonous um, official. Um, but the, the work is in connecting that event to the larger landscape of what's happening because it's very simple to see, you know, it's, it's easy to, to falsely imagine that the Whitmer story is different than the Boogaloo story, is different from the Proud Boys story, is different from the Adam Waffen story on the base. But there are many, many, many um, places where we see this activity bubbling higher and higher. Um, we see people like, um, FBI Director Ray and whistleblowers like DHS um, whistleblower Elizabeth Newman are sounding the alarm about exactly how widespread and serious this is. And we have to do the work of connecting these events. So for instance, we often get um, stories about the Christchurch attack as Islamophobic violence, um, the Charleston shooting as anti-Black violence, the El Paso shooting as anti-immigrant violence, the Pittsburgh shooting as anti-Semitic violence. And they are all of those things but they are also all white power violence. All of those gunmen share an ideology, a set of symbols, a set of slogans, and in many cases share online social ties. Now, that's what the FBI and the DHS are trying to combat, um, and that's what they're telling our president is the threat. Um, So I would just, I mean, this isn't about comparing two sides with equal threat on both sides. This is about um, a movement on the right that is intent on the overthrow of the United States is catastrophically violent, is interested in mass casualty attacks. Um, And you don't have to listen to me as a historian to know this, but we should be listening to the DHS and the FBI. We should also be listening to the de-radicalizers who are trying to help people get out of these groups. We should be listening to the watchdog associations, um, the tech companies where people are trying to do the work of monitoring hate speech and are just utterly overwhelmed by the volume and we have to pay attention to the history of these movements and the long list of anti-civilian violence um, that
0: they have already attempted to really understand this threat. Well well. speaking of uh, social media, Congress and regulators are focusing their attention and have been on the culpability of the social media giants in helping to uh, spread this information. What do you see as their role and what they can credibly do to help prevent it? You know, that's a great question, and I'm not a specialist on the tech companies and current-day
2: information flow, but I will say this movement has been online in a sense since 1983-84 when it used um, code word accessed um, kind of early computer networked message boards to spread not only ideology and assassination lists, but also things like personal ads and other kind of social materials. So these are not people who are new to social network activism. These are pioneers of social network activism. That should tell us that it's not all about Facebook or Twitter. It's just exponentially sort of um, made possible by Facebook and Twitter. But they will find other spaces when we close down these spaces. What we need is a comprehensive sort of um, pan platform set of policies and actions because this is a very opportunistic movement and it will you know, it will go to whatever corner of the Internet is not regulated sufficiently. In your research, have you been able to track sources of funding? So um, in the earlier period, so I'm a historian. Mm -hmm. Um, My book is about the period from the post-Vietnam War moment to the Oklahoma City bombing. And in that period, there's a bunch of different kinds of funding coming in, ranging from the occasional very rich person who puts in private money to, um, you know, everyday things like coupon sharing campaigns and family donations to things like million-dollar robberies of armored cars and department stores. Um, All of that money is very, um, in the the earlier period, we do see that money systematically distributed to groups all around the country instead of hoarded in any one place. And this is one of the ways that we know that this is a widespread social movement. Um, So all of that is to say that I would expect a combination of funding sources in the present um, and I would think that one way that we might be able to combat what's happening
0: here is to track the movement of money. Well, let, let's spend our last few minutes talking about that. Having raised the alarm and uh, discussed the size and scope of the problem, what remedies are there for civil society?
2: Yes, great. So, okay, the, the, the biggest thing, in my opinion, as a historian, is that all of this is coming from the fact that we as a nation have never really faced our own history of racial inequality. Um, UNLIKE NATIONS WITH um, INGRAINED SYSTEMS OF RACIAL INEQUALITY AND histories SIMILAR TO THE UNITED STATES, WE HAVE NEVER HAD A TRUTH AND RECONCILIATION COMMISSION. WE'VE HAD VERY LITTLE BY THE WAY OF PUBLIC MEMORIAL AND MUSEUM MAKING EFFORTS. Um, I THINK THE NATIONAL AFRICAN AMERICAN MUSEUM um, ON THE NATIONAL MALL IS A START, BUT WE CLEARLY HAVE UNANSWERED AND VERY DIVISIVE OPINIONS IN THIS NATION ABOUT WHAT RACE IS AND WHAT FUNCTION IT SHOULD HAVE IN OUR CULTURE. Um, That's a series of conversations that I think has to happen. More practically, I think that what we have to realize about the white power movement is that it has been with us for this long, not because of any one sector of society failing. Um, It has happened because of what historians call a transscalar set of problems, meaning that we need solutions not only at the level of, say, legislation and surveillance resources, We need legislation, we need surveillance resources, we need the tech companies to make changes. We need journalists to stop saying lone wolf when what they mean is ideologically motivated terrorism. We need ordinary people to do the work of connecting these stories together. Um, And we need to shine a very bright light on this. This is a movement that has tried for decades to disappear as a social movement through leaderless resistance and other strategies. And I think one of the best
0: tools at our disposal is simply to pay attention. Your book is Bring the War Home: The White Power Movement, and Paramilitary America. Kathleen Blue, went in writing and speaking about this. Do you feel any sense of personal danger?
2: I have to say that for me the the potential good of this work is that people paying attention to the story is is, is worth all of it It's a hard line of thinking, and I appreciate you know you and the audience taking the time to think about some things that are very difficult to face about where we find ourselves. But I really believe that this story getting out there could make a difference. And I thank you for for doing that with me. Thank you for
0: spending time on Q&A. We appreciate it. Thank you. In this Q&A program, we're unpacking the debate between President Trump and Joe Biden about the relative threats of the white supremacist movement on the alt-right and the Antifa movement on the left. Next up, you'll be hearing from Jillian K. Melcher, an editorial writer for The Wall Street Journal, who's written about Antifa. But first, let's begin by hearing the comments from the two men in the first presidential debate.
1: Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing own, problem. This old is, old is, FBI left-wing. This is a left-wing wing problem. This is a left-wing problem. I'm a white supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it, not a militia. That's what right. his it's an idea. FBI... His okay. FBI director gentlemen, said. Well, then gonna, you know no, what these people are. No, no, we're done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. Everybody we're moving to your bad you in over your administration—that's not an idea. Everybody Antifa in your administration tells you the truth is a, has a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no Antifa, ideas that are. Antifa. Probably... Antifa is a dangerous radical group. All right, gentlemen, group. we're now moving on to the Trump and, and you ought Biden to be records. With them. They'll overthrow you when a president. Seconds.
0: After that exchange, you wrote for the Wall Street Journal editorial page about Antifa, coming to the conclusion that both men are right. What's what your thinking?
3: Well, so uh, Biden is right that this is an ideology, first and foremost, it's less of a group. But I think uh, Trump is also right that it is dangerous, that it's a radical movement, um, and that it's been really willing to engage in and to endorse violence.
0: Let's understand terminology. Antifa stands for anti-fascist. So for the adherence of Antifa, what is the fascism that they see in American society that they oppose?
3: Well, I think that's part of the problem that this is a really disorganized, uh, you can't even really call it a group, it's an ideology. So the idea that adherents believe in is that they have to confront racism, have to confront bigotry, sexism, homophobia, wherever they see it. But those things are never quite clearly defined. And so sometimes you have people who are using more traditional uh, definitions of it. Other times it's expanded to mean uh, conservatives, Republicans, so it's, it's this expansive sort of definition about what constitutes fascism. Um, And because this is a leaderless movement, no one's really there to to say what that means.
0: Sometimes critics of Antifa also use the word anarchist. Are the two terms interchangeable?
3: Uh, So they overlap, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. So you have the radical left, Um, you have many anarchists who say they are part of Antifa, they identify as anti-fascist, but you also have people who are not anarchists who identify as anti-fascist and we've got to keep in mind this is a a group if you want to say it but you can't there's no formal membership there's no hierarchy there's no structure it's not something that you can sign up for membership in it's literally something that people say they are it's more like a political affiliation or movement um they're able to organize online but there's no top-down
0: structure here If it is uh, hard to define and there's no structure, how do uh, public officials ever estimate the size of the Antifa movement?
3: I don't think you can, to be honest. Um, I I mean, you see protesters taking to the streets as as you did this summer. Um, Many of them are Antifa. There's some overlap between uh, the Antifa movement, the anarchist movement, and Black Lives Matter. But it's, it's essentially um, sort of a panoply of far left groups that are taken to the streets in these protests. And I think it's really difficult um, to count them because pretty much the only way you could do it is go up and say, do you identify as Antifa or not? It's not like there would be even a place online or in person to count.
0: You did interview some Antifa adherents for your, your piece. How did you find them?
3: <laughs> well, so two of them are experts and I'll actually back up a little bit. So this isn't a new movement. Um, if if you're in Antifa, uh, they date themselves back to like the 1920s, the 1930s in the U S and the UK. This is a movement that's been around since the 1980s uh, actually came up out of punk. Um, but there are a couple of scholars who've been studying them for quite some times. So I, I reached out to them, including one of them who himself identifies as Antifa and this was back like 2017, I think, uh, when you were starting to see a lot of clashes between Antifa adherents and uh, groups on the far right, like Patriot Prayer uh, in Seattle, in Berkeley, in Portland, clashing off in the streets. And then the other thing is, because this isn't a group with a hierarchy or a leader, um, a lot of the organization is done spontaneously. It's done online through Twitter. Um, So as this movement was starting to grow and pick up steam, 2016, 2017, 2018, I followed quite a few of the Twitter accounts um, and ended up talking to some adherents that way. Um, And it also, I'll I'll just say, uh, you know, some of my Facebook friends identify as Antifa. Um, So it is a pretty broad base.
0: Can you, uh, From those conversations and from the people you follow, can you give us any sense of uh, the demographics of the adherents?
3: Um, I would say, and the experts that I've spoken to would also say that it's primarily a white movement. It's young, it's left-leaning, and kind of the basic tenets are that they'll expose this expansive idea of fascism Um, with its anarchist leanings. uh, A lot of anti-ved adherents um, don't actually want state censorship of speech that they find offensive or fascist. Um, What they'd rather do is use the heckler's veto or they would like to go and find people that they perceive to be fascist, expose them online through doxing, try to get some sort of social consequence, um, whether it's losing their job, uh, losing their popularity, losing friends, becoming undateable. Or, and then kind of the third component of this is, not everybody who identifies as Antifa engages in violence but pretty universally they refuse to disavow it. They view violence as something that is an essential part of the movement, a legitimate response to fascism. And there's even this phrase going around in Antifa circles, it's called anticipatory self-defense. The idea is that if you believe that fascism is such a threat that it will end up in violence, it's better to preempt that now. Now the the problem with that is um, anticipatory self-defense looks a lot like going on the violent offense. And in a system where you do have rule of law, where you do have the right to vote, um, where you do have a, a political system that's accountable to the people, um, the use of violence is obviously wrong.
0: In watching some of the, the clashes that have happened in American cities, particularly in Seattle and Portland, uh, over the past several months, uh, you describe it as sort of toxic brew of adherence from uh, of all different parts of the political spectrum. Is it clear who's responsible for that violence when it does break out?
3: Um, so I think that's kind of one of the difficulties that law enforcement faces. So there has been a lot of violence. Um, I mean, I, granted there are peaceful protesters there, but I think the refusal to disavow violence is an illegitimate form of dissent. Is a problem here and we have seen pretty extreme violence um the one that strikes me is the repeated use of commercial fireworks and I, I didn't really understand what that was so i actually spoke to someone who sells fireworks at a fireworks stand um these aren't you know sparklers they're not the firecrackers that you buy and let off um these are the kind of fireworks that cities use when they're doing the fourth of july um they're, they're pretty high-grade explosives and they're really dangerous. And you've seen these deployed again and again against law enforcement. Um, And I I think police really face a problem when they're trying to contain this violent movement because it is leaderless, it's not centralized. There's not one person calling the shots. And so that means two things. First of all, that when people are taken to the streets, um, there's a tendency for the most extreme or the most assertive or the most violent groups. To kind of set the tone for the night and there's no leader to rein them back in there's no restraining or moderating force here and the second thing that this means is unlike past movements um, where you could go after the leader where you could go after the financial structure it's much more difficult to target a movement that is decentralized Um, you can take down one person who is you know shooting off a firecracker or shooting off a firework or throwing uh, you know, sticks or stones or frozen water bottles at officers. But in its place, you'll have hundreds more. So I, I think that really poses a challenge to law enforcement that they haven't faced yet.
0: Well, you mentioned financial structure. How uh, is the Antifa movement or various cells or local organizations, how are they funded?
3: <laughs> so I actually asked quite a few of them this. Um, There's a theory going on the right that uh, George Soros funds this. I I actually reached out to his organization. They deny it. And when I asked Antifa folks about it, they found it completely laughable. Um, This is a far-left movement. It's got anarchist components. It's anti-capitalist. So the idea that they would take money from a billionaire, a lot of them just said, no way we would find that immoral. Now, there is some funding. But what you see is not like Antifa funding in particular. It's kind of across the spectrum of far left groups. And it tends to be GoFundMe groups. They're targeted toward bailout funds, toward legal defense funds. And some of that money might go to Antifa. Some of it may also go to Black Lives Matter. Um, Some of it may go to protesters who identify as neither, but who are are taking to the streets and demonstrating. Um, But I I think the third thing to keep in mind here is that when we talk about funding, a lot of these things aren't actually that expensive. So there was a story that went viral about, you know, like a U-Haul showing up at a protest, um, dropping off a lot of supplies. But the protesters that I talked to um, said that even if you were to do that, like rent a U-Haul, take supplies, at most that would cost a couple hundred bucks. It's crowdfunded. People are going and printing off their own flyers. They're organizing online. And it's just not that expensive.
0: One of the other uh, aspects of the protests uh, that has been written about is that the coordinated uh, wearing of black during protests. Mm-hmm. What What is the idea behind that as they move to sites where they're forming protests?
3: Well, it's called Black Block. Um, and it's something that you've seen I I think about in the last two decades, affiliated with far left protest groups. And the idea is that if you're gonna show up in a protest, especially if there's a high likelihood of vandalism or the use of violence, that you want some form of anonymity as protection against law enforcement. So a lot of Antifa protesters have embraced this tactic. They'll show up wearing all black. They'll often show up with face coverings and it makes it really difficult for law enforcement to identify who specifically is responsible for a violent act. So um, at at times you'll see even um, say somebody starting a fire or somebody destroying a business engaged in looting. The police will come in and try to make an arrest. And then you'll see a bunch of people who are identically dressed uh, with their faces covered coming up, trying to interrupt that arrest. And it makes it also easier for them to phase back into the crowd um, and to become unidentified. So that's another challenge that law enforcement faces as it's going after this radical movement.
0: So how are tactics like that shared among adherents? <laughs>
3: Social media, um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. A lot of these protesters will get online and learn from each other. Um, and another really interesting phenomenon, I think, um, I cover the protest movement in Hong Kong as well. And you're starting to see protesters paying attention to what's worked in other countries during other protest movements and adopting those tactics. So you're starting to see, for instance, the use of umbrellas to block surveillance cameras.
0: The, uh, I wanted to go back to the uh, nonviolent tactics and have you define a term for people that really aren't Internet savvy. You mentioned that one of the tactics is doxing. What yeah. is doxing?
3: Doxing is the idea that you'll find somebody that you disagree with, who you think has abhorrent beliefs, and you will expose all of their personal information online. And that can vary from their cell phone number, their home address, their employer. And Antifa uses this as a way to ramp up the pressure on these people. It'll often drive campaigns where um, it will, for instance, pick a tweet. It finds objectionable and say, call this person's employer, flag this person's tweet with their employer, with the explicit goal of a uh, employment or a social consequence.
0: And what uh, defenses do people who have been targeted have against tactics like this?
3: They don't have a lot, um, to be honest. This is a movement that's closely linked to cancel culture or call out culture. Um, And I I do think you have seen cases where people have been um, targeted potentially unjustly who say that they are not fascist um, or who have been misidentified. And unfortunately, there's not much they can do about that because this is a decentralized movement. There's nobody that you can appeal it to if it was a case of mistaken identity. But also it's not illegal
0: back in june you wrote for the journal about antifa activity in the city of philadelphia in particular I want to read a paragraph for our viewers that you that you uh, wrote, not all of Philadelphia's anti fascists and anarchists engage in violence or vandalism, though many support a diversity of tactics and won't denounce attacks on property. Some run food banks and organizations offering legal support and mutual aid. Others research and expose alt right activists or agitate for the disinvitation of public speakers they consider fascist. Many shun electoral politics, but their ideas, including that capitalism is destructive and that police, prisons, and immigration enforcement should be done away with have become increasingly mainstream on the left. So I have a a few questions about that. First of all, what was happening in Philadelphia that drew your attention?
3: Um, So Philadelphia is a city with a a pretty large uh, radical left or far left presence. And that has included in recent years um, more and more people who identify as Antifa. So that was interesting to me to begin with. Uh, The second thing that was really interesting is I'd seen a case about a property developer um, who'd been a gentrification. And his properties had actually been um, vandalized a ton of times. Uh, his family had been threatened, his employees had been threatened. And this kind of came to a peak when somebody lit one of his developments on fire um, and caused a, a significant amount of damage. Um, so what he told me is that he'd gone to the police time after time, uh, tried to get this you know, investigated, tried to get somebody prosecuted for this pattern of harassment and intimidation against him and that he was just having no luck getting anywhere. So I, I was curious about why that was and investigated that in my story.
0: So we talked about some of the non-activists uh, non uh, non-activist of, and you write about them in that paragraph and also some of the nonviolent means that they uh, use. But I, I'm curious about uh, something that you write which is that um, many shun electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Is the Antifa philosophy represented anywhere in our current electoral politics?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's one that I've raised to them. So I, I think this gets to the, the sort of anarchist uh, theme or strain undercutting this entire movement. Um, they certainly don't like Donald Trump, certainly don't like Republicans, but a lot of them also really object to the Democratic Party. Uh, You know, speaking about Philadelphia in particular, when I was out covering the Democratic National Convention back in 2016, um, there was a pretty significant far-left or anarchist presence that was really mad at Hillary Clinton that views the Democratic Party as corrupt, that believes that it has uh, turned its back on people of color and on the poorest Americans. So I I think there's a general and widespread rejection of the U.S. political system as a whole. Um, They don't want, uh, I I would say, like a transition from Republican politics to Democratic politics. That wouldn't solve the problem that they're trying to solve. They're actually seeking a comprehensive overhaul of the system.
0: There's a however there, and that's that your last sentence, which is that their ideas have become increasingly mainstream on the left. So what do you see happening and the progressive part of the Democratic Party that uh, is enforcing these these ideas or trends, reinforcing well,
3: it. You know, I, I do think that there's a tendency on the left that has grown to question whether America was ever great. Um, there's also a greater tendency to view politics that you disagree with as illegitimate, and uh, to confront capitalism to view that as a problem. And, and those are kind of the three things that I, I think that. Anarchists and Antifa, that's their critique of the political system. It has gone mainstream in a bigger way. Um, you know, I, I think people would have been surprised four years ago if a movement to utterly defund the police had become mainstream, yet that's where we are. And I, I also think you're starting to see a lot of the rhetoric um, pioneered by anarchists, by the far left, by Antifa, by the more radical components of the pol- culture. Um, become mainstream. And then you're also seeing an expansion of call-out culture or of canceling people on Twitter. And that's something that very much has its roots in this radical leftist activist tradition.
0: So overall, what are the trends that you see happening in American society writ large that is encouraging the growth of movements of this sort?
3: Um, you know, I would actually argue that when, it's partially an effect of the stay-at-home orders, I think that when people are separated um, don't have a chance to sit down and engage in conversation it trends you toward more extreme ideas which you'll find online so that lack of engagement person to person where you have to actually sit down have a conversation with someone that you like who has different ideas than you without that um, you're going to move to a more radical position so I, i think that's one component of the trend I also think a lot of people believe that Democrat or Republican, the system hasn't worked for them um, and that there's corruption or there's widespread uh, problems within the U.S. political system. That's what I hear when I talk to people who are more open to embracing Antifa or have actually gotten and taken the step of identifying as Antifa.
0: Regarding specifically the idea of defunding the police, and you've written that many of the protests then logically occur around police precinct stations. Um, but what, how do they envision a, a society without any sort of uh, law enforcement or uh, a, a way to punish people uh, who are um, you know, uh, really uh, destructive of society?
3: Um, you know, that's something I've asked and I haven't really gotten a good answer to. Um, I mean, a lot of people who want to defund the police believe that you can have some form of community policing. They want to invest more in mental health. They want to invest more in communities and things like childcare. But I don't think that they have a good answer for what you do, for instance, if there's a murderer or a rapist or somebody who is habitually committing violent crimes. Um, And I I do actually think that's a weak spot in the defund the police movement. Um, And just getting back to the idea of why courthouses, why police precincts have been targeted, Um, they view those as legitimate targets because they want to take down the system. They disagree with the system. But I I think that this is something um, really important to pay attention to in the cultural moment because the United States relies on rule of law. When there are injustices, we rely on our court system. We We rely on our juries. Um, to administer justice and this is an alternative form of justice that they're advancing that is extra legal and i I think uh, in places like portland and seattle we've seen how quickly that devolves into uncontrollable mob rule
0: i wanted to go back um, to your reference to china and hong kong and the protesters there excuse me Um, and maybe engage a little bit in a philosophical conversation you know as you well know this country was founded On protest against established order, and we've enshrined the right to protest in the First Amendment. So uh, when you think about these questions of people um, protesting elements of our society, where's the line drawn?
3: Well, I think there's a big difference um, between what's happened in Hong Kong and what's happened in the United States. And this is the difference that the Chinese Communist Party regularly tries to blur. Uh, They point out that protests in Hong Kong devolved into violence and vandalism, protests in the US have devolved into violence and vandalism. But what I think is really important to understand is that in the United States, you have an alternative way of expressing political dissent that you do not have in Hong Kong and you do not have in mainland China. And that is your right to vote. And that is uh, rule of law. You have protection in the courts. You have a a system that enshrines human rights at the center of it. and you're actually able to have a political voice. Um, What we've seen happening in China, for sure, is that dissent, peaceful protest, is squashed violently by the state. And in Hong Kong, we've seen the enactment of a national security law that criminalizes all forms of dissent, where the maximum punishment is up to life in prison. So I I, I think that in the United States, in particular, uh, where you do have a recourse, a political voice beyond violence, beyond vandalism, um, it becomes really dangerous and improper to endorse political violence. I, I think that's the difference.
0: We have about five minutes left. I wanted to play a clip from FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, as he testified on Capitol Hill about Antifa, uh, because your piece concludes with uh, when protests evolve into violence or property destruction, and uh, society has to respond what the challenges are. But let's listen to him talking about it, and then we'll come back to you.
1: Antifa is a real thing. It is not a fiction. Now, we have seen organized tactical activity at both the local and regional level. We have seen Antifa adherents coalescing and working together in what I would describe as uh, small groups and nodes. We have a number of predicated investigations into some anarchist violent extremists who operate, some of whom operate through these nodes and subscribe to or self-identify with anarchist extremism, including Antifa. uh, And we will not hesitate, will not hesitate to aggressively investigate that kind of activity.
0: So bringing us back to our definitions at the beginning, it's clear as we conclude here that not all Antifa adherents are anarchists, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. That's right. So when, in fact, it devolves into anarchy and crimes are committed, what are the challenges for law enforcement, both at the federal and uh, state and local level?
3: So you can't target Antifa or a decentralized movement, a leaderless movement, by going after the person at the top or by going after the funding structure. What we've seen right now with law enforcement is they are trying to go after individuals who commit illegal acts. So the person who threw the water bottle at cops, the person who let the firework off, the person who burned down the building. Um, But the challenge here is that because this is decentralized, you take one person out of the equation, but there are hundreds more willing to come in. Um, And that's something law enforcement doesn't really have a good answer for how it will confront.
0: We have a big election facing us in this country in a very short period of time. Do you see one outcome or the other, the re-election of Donald Trump or the election of Joe Biden, having any influence on the Antifa movement?
3: So when I speak to Antifa protesters, there's a lot of skepticism um, about whether Donald Trump will step down. And there's also, I think, a reluctance to believe that any Donald Trump win could be a legitimate win. And I, I think a lot of them are gearing up, uh, preparing to protest, and a lot of them refuse to disavow violence during those protests. So I, I think there is potential for this, especially if uh, there's, you know, um, one candidate appears to be in, in front at the beginning then several weeks later as mail-in ballots are counted. Um I guess if there's ambiguity around the results or the legitimacy of this election, I think there's a high potential for confrontations, including violent ones.
0: From your perch on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, do you anticipate continuing to follow Antifa and also the alt-right? And uh, from what perspective, what interests you most?
3: I sure do. Um, so I think with movements like this, there's a tendency on the left and the right to create straw men and it is really important to cover these movements because they shape american politics Uh, they are in some ways the flashy and interesting things but i also think that just in the interest of having a public discourse it is important to sit down with people and hear them out to understand their critique of the political system and the solutions that they're offering and engage with those ideas and one thing that i'm really concerned about is that these confrontations that particularly involving the use of political violence that there's not a real debate going on. Um, So my goal is to understand what these people are thinking and then write about it in an intelligent way.
0: You can find Jillian K. Melcher's work on the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Thanks so much for uh, being part of the C-SPAN Q&A program. We are delighted to meet you and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.